This is uh, Dr. Pedro Ramirez, Editor-in-Chief of the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer. And today I have the great pleasure of speaking with Dr. Lois Ramandera, who is a full professor in the Department of Gynecological Oncology and Reproductive Medicine at MD Anderson Cancer Center. She's also involved with the MD Anderson Cancer Prevention HPV effort and on the American Cancer Society HPV Roundtable and the Texas HPV Texas Steering Committees. Uh, welcome, Lois. Thanks. I'm happy to be here. So, Lois, obviously, this is an important topic. We're going to be talking about the HPV vaccine and HPV-related uh, cancers. Could you start by just telling us a little bit about um, what are some of the more common HPV-related cancers? There's actually six cancers caused by the HPV virus. Uh, the one that we're all very familiar with is cervix cancer, but what most people don't know is that there are actually more oral pharyngeal cancers related to HPV than there are cervix cancers, and these cancers primarily affect men. Uh, so the six cancers are cervix, uh, penile, vulvar, vaginal, anal, which almost all of them are caused by HPV, and then for the oral pharynx, it's the tonsils and the back of the tongue. And then typically in, in the setting, specifically speaking about cervical cancer, um, tell the audience, what, what are some of the more common subtypes that we now identify with HPV-associated uh, disease? Great. Well, there's uh, more than 100 different types of HPV subtypes, and fortunately, there are only a few that actually cause cancer. The ones that we primarily worry about uh, in the non-cancer area are HPV 6 and 11, and we know these to cause low-grade lesions in the cervix and in the anus, but also uh, genital warts. The one other aspect of the 6 and 11s that are important is that it causes recurrent respiratory papillomatosis, which is a rare but uh, annoying and costly disease that occurs in infants, and unfortunately, we think they get this through the birth canal. In terms of the cancer-causing HPV subtypes, HPV 16 and 18 are the ones that caused about 70% of cervix cancers and 90% of oral pharyngeal and anal cancers. But there are a number of different subtypes that can also cause cancers, and fortunately, um, the ones in the HPV 9 vaccine, which we'll talk about, um, incorporate another five high-risk types, raising your protection rate from about 70% of cervix cancers to about 85 to 90% of all the HPV-related cancers. Fortunately, all three of the vaccine versions that have been out incorporate protection against 16 and 18. So with that, obviously, bringing us to, to the subject of the, of the vaccine, and obviously a lot to talk about here, um, tell us a little bit about what vaccines are there available in the United States and, and what are the vaccines that are available internationally for, for patients? So at one point it was really confusing in the U.S. because we had three different vaccines available and now it's a lot easier to understand there's only one. And we have the Gardasil 9, the one that protects against HPV 6 and 11, 16 and 18, and an additional five high-risk subtypes. We used to have the Cervarex uh, vaccine, which in protects only against HPV 16 and 18, and this is the one that's primarily used in other parts of the world. Um, right now, we know that we will complete any series of anyone who has started with another vaccine with the HPV 9, um, and the only reason that we don't have Cervarex, not because there's anything wrong with it, but but really in terms of a cost-benefit um, uh effort by the pharmaceutical companies. It just wasn't it wasn't productive for them to continue to have Cervarex here when we have Gardasil 9, which protects against so many more viral subtypes. And are you aware whether Gardasil 9 is available 
to most international uh, communities? You know, I'm really not, but I believe that people are all moving in this direction. It's obviously better to raise your protection rate closer to 85 or 95 percent. So what are the current guidelines today in the United States for vaccination? And I was wondering if you could speak not only about girls, but actually also for boys. Well, actually, the recommendations include boys and girls. We try not to separate them anymore. Girls and boys all over the world should be vaccinated um, before they turn 13. So we aim for age 11 to 12. And the reason that age was picked is, one, there are so many vaccines given at an early age uh, as infants, and there's already a lot of pushback from that. And there is what we call the adolescent platform in the U.S., where kids are also getting a Tdap vaccine and a meningococcal vaccine. And so it was just a really easy time to get these kids uh Uh, prevention against uh, a virus that they would be exposed to later in life. So we try to vaccinate all boys and girls at age 11 and 12 during this time. You can start as early as age 9, but once you pass 13, 14, 15, you're really late. You're just late and you've missed an opportunity to protect those kids. The recommendations include all the way up to age 26, but again, the later you are, the issues are number one, you may have already been exposed, and number two, once you turn 15, that's really our cutoff for saying that you need three shots versus two. So if you're one day short of your 15th birthday, you only need two shots about six months apart. And if you're 15 or more, then you need three shots, uh, kind of the first day, two months later, and six months later. Over the last uh, year, the FDA in the U.S. has approved or uh, approved the use of the vaccine for 27 to age 45, and this is based on safety and efficacy. Of course, it's not as useful to give somebody who's already been exposed to the virus uh, the vaccine, but it still could help to some extent. What we're waiting for in the U.S. is we have a group called the American College of Immunization Practice, which decides based on kind of a cost ratio whether or not it will be useful to really recommend that everybody gets vaccinated up to age 45. You know, Have we prevented enough cancers to make it useful for us to pay for all those? Because once the ACIP recommends it, then the insurance companies follow along. So right now, if you're 40, um, you can get the vaccine, but you'll have to pay for it. And then going back to the uh, to the earlier age group, when you mentioned the, the young uh, children as they're vaccinated, uh, th- this vaccine then, it's available, widely available in most pediatricians' offices? It, it's really available everywhere. And in the U.S. at least, if you are insured at this point in time, I can't say what's happening in financially in the U.S. or in the medical field uh, with the current administration. However, at this point, all insurance companies have to cover ACIP recommended vaccines, so it should be covered. Um, if you are uninsured, uh, there is a program called the Vaccines for Children, and that will cover people all the way to, up to age 18. And there's an interesting point about that that I want to come back to. There's also in many states something called the Adult Safety Net Net Providing Services, and it's kind of like VFC for adults. Uh, for instance, in our county system here in Houston, it was recently approved as an ASN provider, and so we also can cover the vaccine for them. The reason I wanted to say there was an interesting point, and I think we'll come back to this later, is that oftentimes kids on VFC programs have easier access through sometimes school-based vaccination programs, which the other insured kids don't have because it becomes too complicated, like what insurance do they have, who's going to pay for it. So actually, people on VFC programs often have higher vaccination rates than people who have other insurances, which in this country 
lower socioeconomic status is often associated with minority status. So in an urban setting, the vaccination rates are actually higher in VFC kids and lower socioeconomic status. That's interesting. And, and as a follow-up to that, um, are there any children that should not be vaccinated or are there any contraindications to this vaccine? There are no contraindications unless you vaccinate the kid and they have an allergic reaction. So the rule is if you have a yeast allergy, which I have no idea how you tell and I haven't <laughs> found anyone who can, you shouldn't give them the vaccine. So if you give someone the vaccine and they have an allergic reaction, which is a very small risk, um, for any vaccine, then you should not give them the second vaccine. The other thing is we don't typically want to vaccinate people who are pregnant. It's not the end of the world if you do. Uh, there's been studies that show that there's no effect on the fetus. However, it's really not the best time to vaccinate. So the one other caveat is that, remember I said if you're under 15, you only need two shots. There are people who will always need three shots. Those are kids who are immunosuppressed, HIV positive, transplant patients, maybe kids with juvenile rheumatoid arthritis who end up needing a lot of steroids or something during their lifetime. And those people I would always give three shots to. And those are given also six months apart? One uh, day one, two months later, and six months later. I see. And six months after the first shot. So okay. you'll be done the whole series in six months. Okay. Um, so One more point on that. Sure. You never have to restart. So if somebody comes to you and you know they got one shot before they turned 15, they still only need one shot, even if it's three years later. If somebody comes to you and they got their first shot after 15, they still need two more shots. And if you don't know if they got two shots, just give them two more shots because there, there's no real harm in, in giving an extra shot. I see. Um, now, a sensitive subject in, in some of the claims against vaccination have been particularly some of the potential side effects of the, of the vaccine. And, and obviously, you mentioned allergies and, and pain at the local side of the vaccination. But do you see any serious side effects from, from the vaccine? This is probably one of the most studied vaccines that's ever been released. Uh, number one, there's already been over 100,000 I'm sorry, 100 million doses given in the U.S. and 300 million given worldwide. In the U.S., we have a number of different ways of testing for safety. One of them is called the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System. And just a little caveat on this, which is interesting, is that this, if you go back to when an oral rotavirus vaccine was released years and years ago, um, it had been tested and it was felt to be safe. But within the, within the first six months, uh, the VAERS, the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System, detected that there seemed to be an association with the oral rotavirus vaccine and intussusception with kids. And within six to eight months, it was pulled from the market. So this vaccine was FDA approved and started to be released in the, this country in 2006. And as I said, over 100 million doses have been given. There have been no serious side effects. The main risks are a little bit of pain and redness at the site. Um, there is about a 7 to 8% chance of um, maybe a low-grade fever or a headache, um, maybe some muscle pain, and, and that's a really um, equivalent to other vaccines. The one other thing is that um, when you vaccinate adolescents, I don't know if any of you have adolescents, but they tend to know what's coming. And when you take them to the uh, pediatrician office, they're already worked up. In fact, some pediatricians say you can say when, see when it's going to happen when the patient walks in the door. But what I'm trying to say is that a, a small percentage of people faint after they get the vaccine. And so it's really recommended that you lay them down or sit them down for 15 minutes. If they happen to fall and get a concussion or or need stitches, that actually gets reported to the vaccine adverse event reporting system, including 
if they got hit by a car afterwards. And that's why the vaccine adverse event reporting system data is what we considered raw data. Anything that goes wrong can go in that. And then it requires scientists to sit down and look for causative reasons. And that's where it's important that you have people who are used to reviewing scientific data make this this kind of assessment. And in addition to that, then, uh, as far as you know, as an expert in this field, no really major long-term serious side effects. None. None. The only risk is that if you vaccinate late or you've already been exposed, it's not going to protect you. And on that same note, as I said, there are still some HPV subtypes that cause cancer that aren't protected against. So the, at present, the recommendation for screening for somebody who's been vaccinated is no different than somebody who hasn't been vaccinated. Um, at this point, the vaccine's been out about 13 years. We have good scientific data that says it is effective at least 10 years. And at this point, there's no evidence that there's a reduction in immune protection after 10 years. This is something that is continued to be monitored. And if at down the road we find that you need a booster, they'll let us know. And Lois, is there a particular segment of the population, particularly here in the United States, uh, where the rates of vaccination are really low and where we should really focus in targeting that, that population? Just like all over the world, um, rural areas where there are many barriers to care, transportation, uh, poverty, um, lack of there being an, an actual health center near the person, those are where the vaccination rates are lowest, rural areas. Urban areas have higher vaccination rates. And as I said, in those urban areas, the patients of lower socioeconomic status seem to have higher vaccination rates than those of higher socioeconomic status. Um, and th those are interesting points. And, and from what I understand around the world, um, this is also a problem. For instance, Australia has an excellent vaccination rate and has because of school-based vaccination programs, gender neutral, both boys and girls are getting vaccinated there. But my understanding is that in their rural areas where often their indigenous population is located, their rates are lower. And um, certainly when you look at the at your opinion in, in with regards to HPV vaccination, it sounds like obviously you advocate for all children to be vaccinated. Um, and you mentioned some other countries and, you know, it, it would seem that one would think that, you know, certainly there would be certain countries that would be leading the way in, in this campaign. Um, is the U.S. one of those countries in leading the way in mm -hmm. uh, vaccination for cervical cancer? Far from it. We are far from it. So actually, um, and this was just at SGO last uh, last week, but we've known this for some time. There are actually low-income countries, um, uh, for instance, Rwanda and Uganda, but specifically Rwanda, which is known for an excellent vaccination rate, specifically for its girls, um, in the 90% range. Um, there are other countries that also have 70 to 80%. So Australia, um, Britain, um, uh, trying to think of... I had a couple others, but many of the European countries, and one of the reasons is they have school-based vaccination programs, some degree of uh, kind of a socialized medicine. In the U.S., our vaccination rates creep up every year, but even this past year, only 53% of our girls are fully vaccinated and less than 50% of our boys are fully vaccinated. I hope we'll continue to see improvements, uh, but it is still a struggle. 
So obviously, I mean, 53% sounds like a very low number for such an important issue. What, what do you think are, are the barriers? What do you think are, are the, the, the points that are limiting, obviously, parents from taking their children to, to getting vaccinated? So when people have looked at what is the major contributor to getting vaccinated, it appears to be the provider recommendation. And it's specifically how we do it. And I often compare this to the way we talk to patients about end-of-life issues. It requires a, a particular way of talking um, and a particular way of, of kind of motivationally intervie uh, interviewing the patient and their family. Um, what we know is that a clear, concise recommendation is the most powerful. So coming in and saying, hey, Jack's due for three vaccines today, Tdap, HPV, meningococcal vaccine, do you have any questions and which arm would you like it in is the best way to get this across. Part of the issue is lack of knowledge of physicians. In fact, there are still many physicians, although less now, that realize that boys need to be vaccinated um, to protect themselves. Uh, another issue is what, what we can kind of politically correctly call low vaccine confidence in our patients and their parents and the need for us to raise their confidence. Uh, somehow we're living in a world where social media with factless claims tend to sway um, our population. And it's really important, especially for, that's why I'm excited to do this interview, that we as um, scientists and providers learn new ways of distributing information because there, is, there are great journals, but pretty much the choir is reading them. And it's important that we find new ways um, to, to tell factual stories to the public and make them understand that we have tested these vaccines, that they're safe and they're effective. And, and for instance, this is the only cancer that we deal with as gynecologic oncologists that, um, that we can actually prevent. So, Lois, those are some really uh, fascinating points and, and obviously an extremely important topic. Uh, and, and, and thank you for doing all the work that you're doing. Um, any additional closing remarks you would like to make? Yeah. Um, science matters. Facts matter. These kind of interviews matter because it is our job um, to, you know, one. here's the big point. We, especially as GYN oncologists, who I think, I hope, are listening to this, um, may not be the ones that are doing the vaccinating. However, we are seeing the downstream effects of HPV infection. And every time we see a patient where we do either a pap smear or we diagnose an HPV-related disease, we have an opportunity to educate that patient who is a member of the community and potentially could even be a spokesperson for the community um, about the relationship between their, va their virus and their cancer and to recognize and really normalize that every single person in the U.S. Um, and around the world will be exposed to the HPV virus. So it's really just part of being human. There should be no stigma. And it's our job to just make sure everyone knows that this is a um, that it's it's out there, it's common, you're going to be exposed, and we have the opportunity to prevent it. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Uh, this is Dr. Peter Ramirez, Editor-in-Chief of the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer with Dr. Lois Ramandera. Thank you. Thank you.